This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When I was younger, I read George Orwell's seminal novel, 1984. Written during the late 1940s, Orwell's work depicts a dystopian future under a brutal regime. Many aspects of the story turned out to be eerily prophetic, predicting developments such as the emergence of the surveillance state. For example, who could forget the infamous and chilling slogan, Big Brother is watching you? But one quote from the book that's really stuck with me over the years, that being, if you want a picture of the future, Imagine a boot stamping on a human face. Forever. You see, this is an image I can definitely relate to, because I live in a small town with a shameful tradition. Because, you see, we, the people of my community, stamp on human faces on a daily basis. And I don't mean that as a metaphor. I mean we literally walk over the faces of fellow human beings each and every morning in a sadistic procession, a sick ritual overseen by a sinister otherworldly figure. We inflict pain and humiliation upon sentient and intelligent beings and then go about our daily business as if nothing ever happened. And the worst thing is, no one is doing anything to stop it. This is quite difficult to explain, so I'll start at the beginning. I was born and raised in this town and have lived here my entire life. And you might ask why I choose to stay, given the horrible events that I've witnessed, and indeed have participated in. Well, I mean, judge me if you will, but I have my reasons. For a start, my family and friends all live here, and believe it or not, they're good people in spite of the horrible acts they're obligated to participate in. And my hometown is actually a pretty good place to live, at least on the surface. Our economy is thriving, crime is nearly non-existent, and neighbors really do look out for each other. To outsiders, it seems like the perfect community, but they don't know the full story. Now, some people reckon it's the price we have to pay, that we must carry on this grotesque tradition to keep our community and family safe and prosperous. I don't believe this myself. What I do know is that social pressure is a very powerful thing, and this is what I grew up with. 
We don't expose the youngest children to the ritual. No child will visit the street of shame until after their 12th birthday. I'll never forget the first time I made that walk. My friends and I were used to hearing the siren ring every morning at 7am. During my childhood I was told by my parents that this wasn't a matter for children. They were very firm on this point, telling me that I should never follow when they went out every morning to do what was needed to be done. But I was curious, of course. I mean, what child wouldn't be? But I saw how my parents looked first thing in the morning, as they solemnly marched out of the door to their secret business. They would arrive back about a half an hour later, always removing their shoes at the front door. This was tradition in our household, along with most of the others in the community. I would later discover why. After my parents returned home, we would sit down as a family and eat breakfast together, and the tension would gradually lift as we returned to some sort of normality. Nevertheless, there was always a darkness in my parents that I could never quite put my finger on. Later, I understood the heavy burden that they had to carry, that of otherwise good people forced to keep a horrible, horrible secret. Now I knew I would eventually discover the truth once I came of age, and so it came to pass. I remember that day vividly. I felt both excited and anxious as a million possibilities ran through my young and impressionable mind. On that fateful morning, my father came up to my room shortly after the 7am siren. I looked into his tired and sunken eyes and realized this was the last thing that he ever wanted. He never wished to expose me to this, but there was no choice. My mother was clearly upset too, but she remained strong for me. I'll never forget how tightly she held my hand as we made the short walk over to the street of shame, and all the time she whispered in my ear, telling me how everything was going to be okay, and that I must remember how much my family loved me, and would continue to do so, no matter what. By that point, I was truly terrified, and I honestly had no idea what to expect. The street of shame is cordoned off from the rest of the town, sealed off by barricades for all but the brief period in the morning when the twisted ritual takes place. Only one person is able to grant access to the street. A mysterious, frightening, and possibly supernatural individual known only as... The lollipop man. I saw the man for the first time that morning and was so terrified by the sight of him that I almost passed out. The lollipop man is elderly, perhaps in his 70s or 80s, his skin being wrinkled and his hair turned white. Nevertheless, he never seems to age and his physical appearance hasn't changed in decades. He wears a long yellow fluorescent jacket like those worn by council workers, and he holds a two-sided sign attached to a long pole, with green on one side for go and red on the other for stop. His sole purpose in life seems to be granting access to the street, managing the foot traffic, 
and ensuring everyone does their duty while also not taking things too far. At first glance, he looks like the normal kind of lollipop man you'd expect to find outside any primary school. But upon closer inspection, it's clear there's something much more sinister about this enigmatic individual. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. What really terrified me on that awful morning was seeing his eyes. So dark dead and soulless, like those of a heartless monster dedicated only to spreading misery and pain. I was astonished to discover the whole town was already there. Every man, woman, and child over the age of twelve. All our neighbors, my school friends, and everyone from respected public servants, professionals, and businessmen to everyday folk who worked for minimum wage. There was literally hundreds of people there, all standing single file in a long queue stretching down the pavement, all waiting patiently for their turn. Surprisingly, the whole process was very well organized and efficient. The line moved quickly, and the lollipop man kept things running smoothly. Everyone waited their turn, and nobody expected or received preferential treatment. We joined the queue and stood in the line along with the rest, my mom continuing to grip my hand despite my obvious embarrassment, while my dad maintained a tough front despite his clear discomfort. As we slowly walked forwards, coming ever so closer to the barricade, I started hearing the screams. It was faint at first, but soon increasing in volume, until they became a horrifying crescendo which drowned out every other sound. I was horrified, looking up to my mother's eyes in the hopes of finding some comfort, but instead seeing only a mirror reflection of my own terror and revulsion. Before long, we reached the head of the queue. The screams were deafening now, so much so that I thought my own eardrums would burst. I remember my father physically pulling me from my mother's arms and shoving me forward, slapping me on the back while mouthing something I could not hear. I paused at the barricade, tears rolling down my cheeks while my whole body shook almost uncontrollably. I glanced up at the lollipop man, hoping for some sympathy but finding none. Instead, he looked down upon me with cold and emotionless eyes, turned his lollipop sign to green, and opened his mouth to speak a single word that was somehow audible above the hellish din. Walk. I reluctantly did as I was told, not seeing any other options or prospects for escape. The barricade slowly lifted, and I put a shaking foot forward before setting eyes upon the street for the first time. For a moment, I 
could not understand what I was seeing, as my brain couldn't process the inexplicable scene before me. I glanced down at the pavement and was appalled by what I had witnessed. Human faces and the slabs facing up towards the sky and completely encased in concrete. To this day, I don't know whether bodies are trapped or buried underneath the pavement, or if the head is the only part of them. In any event, they are all still fully conscious, capable of feeling pain and able to move their eyes and mouths to cry and scream out in agony. There were several dozen such faces, all lined up in a row along narrow pavement. I quickly realized that there was no way to get down the street without stepping on their faces. There was no other choice. I could only go forwards, not backwards. I looked at the first face in the line, bloodied after so many had already stomped over it, and from what I could tell it was a man, but I found it impossible to be sure, as his face was a bloody mess, with his teeth smashed, nose broken, and his left eye swollen shut, while his right eye stared up at me, full of fear and pain. He tried to speak through his bleeding lips, and I imagined he was pleading for mercy. I stood still for a moment, not wanting to go through with it, but somehow realizing that I had no choice. And so, to my eternal shame, I stepped forward and trampled the poor guy's face. My victim screamed, but I didn't look back, instead taking the next step and stamping upon the next human face. I continued the sickening process, stepping on face after face, fighting back the revulsion I felt and not stopping until I reached the barricade at the far end of the street. As you can imagine, I was in a near hysterical state by the end of it, sobbing into my hands as I waited for my parents to follow me through. And the worst thing is, I had to do it all again the next morning and every day that followed. It does get easier with time. Eventually your brain will adapt to the most horrible of things, and ultimately you can become desensitized to just about anything. But even after all these years, I still face the walk with a sense of foreboding dread, and I feel disgusted with myself after it's done. In a way though, I'm glad I continued to feel this way, as at least it means I have a shred of humanity left in me. There are 36 faces embedded along the street of shame. No one remembers exactly who they were in life. The story which the townsfolk had settled upon is that they were all bad people who committed terrible crimes. Murderers, rapists, child molesters, and hate mongers... We believe they are evil bastards who deserve their horrible fate. But perhaps that's just a lie we tell ourselves to justify the awful things we do to them over and over again. Likewise, nobody can explain how they're still alive after all these years. Even more bizarre is the fact that they heal so rapidly 
No matter how much damage is done to an embedded face, teeth smashed, eyes gouged out, noses squashed, and skulls cracked open, it will all be fully healed by the next morning, ready to take on more punishment. Even more terrible is how the faces are fully conscious throughout the daily ordeal, and they seem to remember every horrible act done to them over the years. As a result of years of horrendous physical and psychological abuse, the majority of faces have gone completely insane and will either scream their lungs out or babble incoherently throughout the whole ordeal. There are, however, a few tortured souls who stand out from the crowd, and since we don't know their real names, we've given each of the faces nicknames, and I'll describe three of them here for you. The Pleader This is a man of indeterminable age, the type who was probably once quite handsome, but whose looks have long since gone as a result of years of brutality. Nevertheless, you can see an intelligence within his deep blue eyes, indicating that he still has a rational mind, not yet broken by the insanity of his situation. The pleader will literally beg every person who tramples his face, raising his volume to be heard over the hellish din and asking reasonable questions or making statements, such as, Why are you doing this? You don't have to do this. And, please, I'm a human being and I feel pain. His heartfelt pleas will raise a ping of conscience for people like me. But it makes no difference in the end. He still gets trampled hundreds of times a day. And I suspect he'll eventually be broken and will descend into madness like so many others. But until that day, he'll continue to plead for mercy in the vain hope that he may receive it. The Biter This is a middle-aged woman with a steadfast determination evident behind her bloodshot eyes. As you could probably tell from her name, her thing is biting people. Other than pleading for mercy, this is the only defense the faces have against their attackers, and the Biter is something of an expert at it. Some say she's as crazy as any other face, but I believe there's an intelligence behind her attacks. She watches carefully, searching for any signs of weakness. If there's a toe or an ankle left exposed, she'll get it. But the town folk are wise to the biter's tricks, and so she rarely gets the chance to bite into flesh or inflict any real damage, instead merely gnawing into the hard soles of sturdy shoes and boots until she eventually loses her teeth. But still, one has to admire her defiant spirit, even if her resistance is ultimately futile. And lastly, there's the masochist. Now, this is a young man who is severely disturbed. He's the only one of the faces who actually wants to be stomped on. It seems he gets a perverse pleasure from it. When you approach the masochist, You'll see his eyes light up before he screams out, saying something like, Oh, please, sir, smash your boot into my face. I deserve it. I really do. Just do it. 
And after you've trampled on him, he'll always follow with the words, Thank you, sir. Always wonderful. Now, I don't know if it's a fetish thing or whether the masochist truly believes he deserves his horrific punishment. Either way, I find his face the most difficult to trample. I don't know whether the embedded self-healing faces are the result of some twisted scientific experiment, or if they're supernatural in origin. I guess nobody knows, except maybe the mysterious lollipop man. And he's not talking. I also don't know why the people of my town keep performing this terrible ritual, day after day. There have been countless nights when I've sat up, unable to sleep and vowing that I would not attend the ritual in the morning. And yet, when dawn comes around and I hear the blaring siren, I always relent. I don't know whether it's due to the powerful draw of social conformity, or if I'm genuinely terrified of the lollipop man and what he might do to me. But every morning I turn out, I join the line, and I make the walk. People's reactions to the cruel ritual differ significantly. There are those like myself who dislike it and are racked with guilt, but a few of us are brave enough to publicly object. Years ago, there was a woman who staged a protest against the violence. She was a pacifist and did not wish to inflict physical pain upon a fellow human being regardless of what they may or may not have done. And so, one morning she elected to make the walk in her bare feet as a political statement. Her act was a brave one, but needless to say, it wasn't the smartest of moves from a practical point of view. The biter didn't care that the pacifist was trying to show her compassion. The malicious face bit down and took a chunk of the sole of her victim's foot, making the poor lady scream out in bloody agony. Other faces followed suit, chomping on the woman's exposed feet, making her suffer with every step. And by the end of her walk, the woman's feet were cut to shreds and bleeding heavily. She was rushed to the hospital for treatment, but her wounds became infected due to the bacteria in her attacker's mouths, and ultimately, she died of sepsis. Now it goes without saying that no one has attempted to walk in bare feet since her untimely death. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those who take a twisted and sadistic pleasure in inflicting pain and humiliation upon the faces. There's a family who live on my street who I will not name, but they are this type. The father wears studded football boots most mornings, while his wife dones stiletto heels. They both make sure to stomp upon every face with as much force as they can muster, so to cause the maximum damage. Their teenage children are slightly more subtle, often choosing psychological humiliation over physical damage. Sometimes they'll smear the soles of their shoes with dog feces before rubbing it into their faces, while other times they'll stand over their victims and spit into their open mouths 
After the foul deeds are done, you'll see the four of them laughing and slapping each other on the back, congratulating themselves on the creativity of their cruel acts. The weirdest thing is how this family acts and behaves the rest of the time. If you didn't know better, you would think they were the nicest neighbors around, always inviting you over for barbecues or offering to help you when you have car problems or need assistance with a family emergency. But for that brief period each morning, they turn into inhuman monsters. My father used to argue that the ritual acts as a catharsis for our community, allowing those with pent-up anger and rage to take it out on deserving targets. And perhaps this is the case for some. I tell myself I'm not like the others, but there have been times where I've let my darkest emotions get the better of me. I shamefully recall days where I've been angry about various things in my life and I've taken it out on the helpless row of faces. Other times I've hated the faces, hated them merely because they exist. I want them to die so I no longer have to go through this. But of course, they cannot. For the most part though, I participate with great reluctance and I wear a pair of soft-soled trainers, sturdy enough to protect my feet from the biter, but not so hard as to cause the faces much physical pain. And once I get home, I carry out my own cleansing ritual, hosing my old trainers down on the patio, washing off the blood, tears, bone fragments, shit, so that my shoes are clean and ready for the next day. If only it was so easy to erase the immense guilt I carry or end the vivid nightmares that I suffer. I don't know what to do. I want to stop this, but I don't know how. I'm not brave enough to take a stand against my community's continuous cruelty. At least not yet. Telling my story is the first step. It's a relief to finally get the world to know the truth. Now you may consider me a coward and think my neighbors are monsters, but I believe such cruelty comes from a dark corner of our human psyche. I still believe that change is possible, that this savagery can be stopped, but it won't happen overnight. Anyway, I need to go now. I can hear the morning siren blaring, calling me to the street of shame. The time has come, and I must do what I need to. Because I am the boot, and they are my victims.